Open your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me invite you to come back tonight. This is a uh, a fifth Sunday of the month, and so we do things a little bit different on the evening service of the fifth Sunday. Tonight, we're going to have a time of corporate prayer and uh, some extended singing and a time of baptisms. We have five young men and women this morning that are going to be baptized and sharing their testimonies, and so you won't want to miss that. Let me invite you to be back here tonight for our evening service at 6 o'clock p.m., For this morning, we're going to find ourselves in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. The gospel has no boundaries. It has no bias for ethnicity, for gender, for moral background, for religious background. The life that it gives is eternal. The love that it shows is boundless. The depth from which we are redeemed is immeasurable. And the grace which we receive is endless. The passage that we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 4, I believe, is in existence to show us these truths. That the gospel has no boundaries. That it knows no bounds. We're going to deal with verses 1 through 30 this morning, but let's just get a running start in the first four verses to bring ourselves up to speed on the context in which this passage exists. John chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. As we jump in in John chapter 4, we're we're jumping into the middle of a context that John has been communicating already for three chapters. So if I can just briefly bring you up to speed, we are jumping into a scene in which Jesus' ministry is rapidly growing. He's continually baptizing more and more individuals. His disciples specifically are baptizing more individuals for him. And word about Jesus is spreading quickly. He's becoming popular. Not necessarily popular in a positive sense, but his name is spreading. Nowhere is his name spreading more quickly than amidst the religious crowd. And in John chapter 4, as we're brought up to speed on this passage, we're told that, that the Pharisees hear that Jesus' baptism numbers are now exceeding John the Baptist. He's baptizing more and more people. He's accumulating more and more followers. And Jesus knows that the Pharisees know this. And so what we're told is that Jesus leaves the area in which he was currently ministering. Most recently, he had been ministering in Judea, and we're told Jesus leaves. 
And that's a theme in the Gospel of John. Jesus is repeatedly going, bouncing back and forth between different areas. And the reason for that in the Gospel of John is that the longer Jesus ministers in any particular area, opposition to his ministry magnifies. The more time that he spends in a specific place, the more people hate him and want to kill him, specifically the Pharisees. And so as Jesus is spending time in Judea and baptizing more people and the Pharisees recognize how quickly his ministry is growing, Jesus recognizes that he has to leave to to survive. And you see it all through the Gospel of John. He spends some time in some place and people want to kill him, so he leaves to continue proclaiming the Gospel until his hour comes. Sometimes he leaves by divine intervention. Sometimes he just packs up and starts walking. Well, in this scene, Jesus packs up from Judea and he begins to travel to Galilee. Now, when one is traveling from Judea to Galilee, there are a total of three ways that one could take, but primarily two that Jews would travel to get from Judea to Galilee. We can call these two routes. There was, a, there was an efficient route, and then there was a scenic route. And the scenic route wasn't necessarily more scenic, but whenever I take a wrong turn, uh, my wife is kind to inform me of my wrong turn, and I tell her that we're taking the scenic route. Okay, so really we've got the long route and the short route is what we have. The short route would almost always make more sense for one to travel down that road. However, The short route from Judea to Galilee ran straight through the heart of Samaria. Samaria, as you might guess, is where the Samaritans lived. And from what you may or may not know about the history of the Samaritans, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. So many Jews because of the ethnic and religious diversity. Many Jews chose not to take the short route, but rather to take the long route to avoid Samaria, to avoid the Samaritans. That was because of a bias that they had against the Samaritans, a bias of which Jesus certainly would have taken no part. But in John chapter 4, the author includes a fascinating detail about this truth. Look at verse 4. And he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. Now, factually speaking, that isn't true. No one had to take that route. The word here, it implies necessity, that it was necessary for Jesus to travel through Samaria. Why is that the case? Why does John include that detail, that Jesus had no choice but to travel through Samaria? Why? There were other routes. There are other ways. There was certainly no obligation to pass through one specific way. Well, when we understand all of that, 
that, that geographically and logically, Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. What we are led to conclude is that Jesus had to pass through Samaria because God wanted Jesus to go through Samaria. Jesus had to pass through Samaria because God had a divine appointment for Jesus in Samaria. It was necessary for him to go. It was necessary. Why was it necessary? Well, that's the question that we're going to answer this morning. If you're taking notes, how we're going to break down this passage is that a necessary trip reveals three essential gospel truths. A necessary trip reveals three essential gospel truths. And these three essential gospel truths are revealed from verses 5 down to verse 30 of John chapter 4. Now, we're going to read all of this because I want us to grasp the whole story. But this is a lot of verses that we're about to read. So let me just make you aware of that, that we're going to read and then we're going to be here for a few minutes reading because we got 20-some verses to read, okay? So, so hang with me as we, as we travel through all of this, as we see the three essential gospel truths that made this trip necessary. Verse 5 of John chapter 4. So he, Jesus, came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become a well, a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw water. He said to her, go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you 
are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We're going to stop there. We'll read the rest of the story as we close. Long story. There's a lot of details in there, and this morning we are not going to have the time to cover them all. But what I would have us see this morning is, three uh, is that a necessary trip reveals three essential gospel truths. We're going we're gonna to take the big picture approach to this passage and see three essential gospel truths that ultimately I believe will function well to transition our minds to celebrating the Lord's table later in this service. So three essential gospel truths. Number one, number one, the gospel reaches unlikely targets. The gospel reaches unlikely targets. Why is this story included? Why is this trip necessary? I believe first and foremost it's for this reason. To show us that the gospel reaches even Samaritans. That the gospel reaches the most unlikely of targets. This woman, if we were to paint a picture of an unlikely target for the gospel, we would paint a picture of this woman. Now, scattered throughout this passage are so many different reasons that she is an unlikely target. But first and foremost, she is a Samaritan. And there are several tensions associated with her being a Samaritan. The first one is an ethnic tension. The Samaritans had this ethnic tension with the Jews. If you know the history of Samaritans, Samaritans were half Jew, half non-Jew, half Jew, half Gentile. The Jews, by definition of who they were, wanted a pure identity as descendants of Abraham. They wanted to be completely, 100% Jewish, descendants of Abraham. However, about 750 years prior to this passage, when the Jews were taken into Assyrian captivity, the Assyrians forced the Jews to intermarry and have children with other people that the Assyrians captured. And so the children of these intermarriages were not purely Jewish. They were, if we could, if we could use the term as the Jews would have understood it, they were, they were like half-breeds, part Jew, part Jewish, which is, which is an awful case for someone who would claim to be a Jew. 
And so after the Jews were, were released from captivity, the, the, these, these children received restrictions and, and limitations and opposition from the Jewish people, those that were purely Jewish, and they grew to hate them. So there's this, this ethnic tension of purely Jewish and, and only partially Jewish, which as far as the Jews are concerned, is not Jewish at all. So there's this ethnic, this, this racial tension between Jews and Samaritans. That's why in verse 9, we're told that the Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. But it goes further than even ethnic tension. There's also religious tension. In response to all the opposition that the Samaritans received, they, they kind of, they, they pushed off much of the Jewish religion. They created their own Bible. They, they cut out much of the Jewish Bible, the, the writings and, 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 the, and the history books. They kept the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but they neglected everything else. They constructed their own temple. Opposition to that was so great that in 128 BC, the, the, the Jews came and destroyed the Samaritan temple. So there's this, there's this religious tension there's this ethnic tension that make this woman an unlikely target for the gospel. But it goes even further than that. We're going to jump down to verse 17, where the woman tells Jesus that she has no husband, and Jesus says, that's correct, because you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. Not only is this woman a Samaritan, which introduces ethnic and moral tension, this woman is an ethnic and religious tension. This woman, this woman is an adulteress, which introduces a moral tension. Moral tension. This, this woman, without getting into too many details, this woman has had five husbands and is currently with a man who is not her husband. This, this woman is a serial adulterer. She is, she is deeply bound in sin. So there is this, this moral tension that from an outside perspective makes her increasingly look like a more unlikely target for the gospel. Ethnic tension, religious tension, moral tension, but there's more. Jump down to verse 27. We're told in chapter 4, verse 27, that the disciples come back to Jesus. And look at what they say. At this point, the disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So this... <laughs> The disciples come back, and it is almost comical. It feels very junior highish. The disciples come back, and they're like, he's talking to a girl. Which, which seems weird to us. But this didn't happen in that context. There's also a gender tension here. Like, men did not speak alone 
with women, especially about theological issues, especially if they're a Samaritan, especially if they're an adulterous Samaritan. So, so like the, the tension here, it can't even be measured. It's ethnic and it's religious and it's moral and it's gender. And the, the tension is massive, massive enough for us to look at this woman and say, if anyone is an unlikely target for the gospel, this woman is it. And yet, this trip is necessary because the gospel reaches unlikely targets. It's, it's, just, it's just what it does. The gospel reaches unlikely targets. That's how it works. And this woman, though there were all of these tensions and all of these things from an external perspective would make us think that she's unlikely, is no more likely than anyone ever on the face of the earth to receive the gospel. Because what we have to know is that we're all unlikely targets. There are no likely targets for the gospel. That is a truth to stand on. There is no one that is more likely to receive the gospel than anyone else. And the reason for that is because we are all completely separated from God apart from the grace of Christ. Just, just think about this. Jesus knows this woman. He knows her sin. He knows what she's done and he died for her. The same is true of you and me. Jesus knows us, and he knows our sin, and he knows our thoughts, and he knows that from birth we are at enmity with God, and he died for us. We are no more likely recipient targets of the gospel than this woman. It's easy to think we are, but we're not. Our sin nature places every man equally far from God. There's no one, no one that the gospel cannot reach. It has no, no moral bias. It has no religious bias, no ethnic bias, no racial bias. And, and you, you can never say, based on those conclusions, you can never say, I am too sinful for God to save me. Like, that's the point. This woman, in all of her sin, is not too sinful for Christ to forgive her sin. To claim that you are too sinful for, for salvation is to insult the sacrificial death of Christ. It is sufficient to cover all sin. This woman's and ours. She's an unlikely source, and she, she gets it. She knows that she's an unlikely source. Verse 9, verse 9, she says... How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? She knows she's an unlikely target for conversation, let alone saving grace. But nonetheless, Christ reaches out to her because the gospel reaches unlikely targets. It's amazing how easily thoughts of unlikely recipients of the gospel enter our head. And just, just think about that for a second. 
If you were to think of someone in your mind that is the most unlikely to receive the gospel, who pops into your mind? Like, think about that. Who in your life is the most unlikely recipient of the gospel? Whoever you just landed on, can I tell you that they are no more likely to receive Christ than you were? No more likely to receive Christ than you were. So this, this truth, this truth, it compels us to preach the gospel even to those that we have written off as unlikely recipients because the gospel reaches unlikely targets. Well, this truth is so wonderful to dwell on. If you, if you are saved, praise God that he saved you an unlikely target. And if you're not, if you've not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ and believed in him as the son of God, realize that there is nothing that the gospel can't overcome. It's sufficient to overcome all sin. No actions that you have committed, no thoughts that you have had, no acts that have been committed against you. No religious background, nothing can stop the saving grace of Christ. Now, this is a glorious gospel truth. But it's not the only one that's revealed in this story. We need to keep moving to the second point that's revealed in this passage, and that is that the gospel brings unlimited life. The gospel gives unlimited limited life. Now we're going to start to see this revealed in verse 10 as Jesus starts to present the gospel to this woman. He has asked her for a drink and she has struggled with that, that he's asking her for a drink. And, and his response to her starts to show that the gospel brings unlimited life, that there are no limits on the life that the gospel gives. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus responds to her concern about him asking her for water by saying, you, you have no idea who you're talking to. If you only knew who was asking you for water, you should be asking me. And by the way, if you ask me for water, the water that I give is not physical, it's spiritual. And it, bring, it is a living water. <laughs> the water lives. Now you would think that she would have gotten hung up on that. Living water. What does that even mean? Living water. Water that's alive. She doesn't get hung up on that. Look at verse 11. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then will you get that living water? So she's not hung up on the fact that the water's alive. She's hung up on the fact that he doesn't have a bucket. And so, and so she's, she's confused confused, questioning what he is communicating to her. And, and here, here's what's so fascinating about this. Jesus is asking this woman for water. He doesn't need her water. 
He doesn't need it. He's God. And before you come back and think, well, yes, but he's also man and he has to drink, not in John chapter 4, because when his disciples come back and they bring bread that they just bought in Samaria, they say, Jesus, you're, you're tired, you have to eat. And you know what Jesus says? He says, I don't have to eat. I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they say, what is this food that he doesn't know about? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He doesn't need her water. He doesn't need the disciples' bread. Now, this is all working towards an end for Jesus in which he reveals that he is the gospel and that he gives unlimited life. But she doesn't know. She doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. She's, she's still confused. So she asks a question in verse 12. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Great question. Is Jesus greater than Jacob? Now, she doesn't know who this man is. She doesn't know that he's the Messiah, doesn't know that he's the Son of God. So she fires confidently, you cannot offer me water better than what's in this well. You know why? Because this well was dug by Jacob. You most certainly would not claim to be greater than Jacob, would you? Now what's the answer to the question? Is Jesus greater than Jacob? Yes, he is. He's greater than Jacob. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hold your tongue, I am greater than Jacob. No, he says this. Verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus says, not yes, I am greater than Jacob. He says, yes, my water is greater than the water that Jacob gives. I give a living water. I give a spiritual satisfaction. Jacob's well only gave you physical thirst. If you drink my water, you will never thirst again. And in this statement, Jesus reveals to the woman that the gift that he gives is unlimited life. That's what the gospel gives, life that doesn't end. Comprehend that. Who would say no to that? Who would turn down unlimited life? So we're thinking, okay, the gospel's getting more clear. This is good. Drink of the water that Jesus gives and it will spring up to eternal life. Surely she's tracking now. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, Give me this water, which is a great request. So far, we're good. She responds, give me this water, but finish the statement. Why does she want the water? Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor have to come all the way here to draw water. So now she's getting closer, but she still doesn't get it because her reasoning for wanting this living water is because it takes so long to walk to the well every day. 
She doesn't want to do that. So, sir, give me the living water. Whatever it is, I want it because it's going to make my life easier. So that's the second essential gospel truth, but we still haven't arrived. She hasn't figured it out yet. So Jesus continues with the third essential gospel truth, and that is that the gospel is unveiled in Christ. The gospel is unveiled in Christ. Jesus responds in verse 16 with a curious statement. She's like, give me the water. I want the water. And Jesus says, go call your husband. What does that have to do with anything? Why at this point, when she's requesting the water for the wrong reasons, does Jesus tell her to go call her husband? Is he changing topics? Probably not. It's not like Jesus to do that. Jesus is doing something here. What is it? Why is this trip necessary? Jesus tells this woman to go call her husband because Jesus wants to reveal to this woman that he is not who she perceives him to be. He calls her to go get her husband because he wants to reveal to her that he knows the depths of her life, though they have never met. So we're not going to get into all of the details of this, but Jesus tells her to go and call her husband, and she says, I don't have a husband. She tries to get around it, and Jesus proves in that statement. He knew exactly where, he, where she would go. He proves in that statement to know her completely. And he says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one that you're with right now is not your husband. And how does she respond? Oh, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You are not who you appear to be. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then once again in verse 20, she changes the subject. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she now fires back because Jesus is a prophet. And she has some curiosities that she wants to deal with. So she fires back with, hey, where's the best place to worship? Now, these next few verses, we could spend a few months on a sermon series in the topic of worship because this is loaded. Because we're taking a big picture approach to this text, we're not going to get into all the minutia of what Jesus communicates here. Suffice it to say that Jesus says worship is not about a location. It's about purity. It's about worshiping in spirit. It's about your heart. And it's about worshiping in truth, in accordance with what Scripture reveals, worshiping in a, in a biblical manner. That's what worship is about. He looks to this woman and he says, you do not know who you worship. Look at verse 22. You worship what you do not know. This is specific to the Samaritans. He says, you don't even know who you're worshiping. All of the rest of this passage is this quick little rabbit trail because she is stuck on Jesus saying, you don't know who you worship. Verse 25, the woman responds to that when she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, he's coming. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So she, she makes an appeal to a higher power. She's like, you know what? This guy is getting in my kitchen. I'm just going to, he's saying I don't know who I worship. I'm going to fire back with, I know that the Messiah is coming. 
And that's good enough because he, not you, he is going to declare all things to us. And Jesus then reveals the third essential gospel truth that it's unveiled in Christ. He responds by saying, I who speak to you am he. If we were to word this according to the Greek, the statement would be, I am the one speaking to you. Jesus in this moment claims to be the Messiah claims to be the Christ. He claims to be the one who is able to give life-giving water. And this is the culmination of the story. When he reveals to the woman, it's me. The gospel is unveiled in me. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the one that you've been longing for. And so the woman responds, and she finally, she finally gets to it. The disciples come back and they're amazed that Jesus has been speaking with a girl. But what does the woman do? Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and they were coming to him. This woman immediately turns into an evangelist for Jesus. She immediately goes to the city and says, this is the Christ. And we don't have time to read it now, but if I can encourage you, if you have a few moments to read verses 39 through 45 later, because this woman starts preaching the gospel and people start believing and the gospel is spread amidst Samaria, amidst the most unlikely of targets. The message that unlimited life can be given is spread. The message that the gospel is unveiled in Christ is spread. finally get these are three glorious gospel truths the gospel reaches unlikely targets the gospel brings unlimited life the gospel is unveiled in Christ we have we have set our mind on these truths this morning and I believe that they function perfectly to transition into the celebration of the Lord's table just think about the culmination of those statements. The most unlikely targets, the most unlikely targets were given unlimited life through Christ. The way that that can happen is because Jesus was killed, buried, and resurrected for our sins. But on the night before he was killed, Jesus commanded that his disciples continue a symbolic practice. He commanded that they regularly gather and partake of a meal together. Specifically, what they were supposed to do is take a piece of bread, and that piece of bread was to remind them of Jesus' body that was broken. They were also supposed to take, take a, a, a cup and they were supposed to drink from it and remember in that that Jesus' blood was poured out. That practice that Jesus commanded to be repeated is what we're going to do now. We're going to remember his body. We're going to remember his blood. We're going to remember him 